Hello, friends. This is episode 97 of the Spirituality for Ordinary People podcast. My name is Matt Bruff. I'm a pastor and an author and the host of this podcast. Thanks for listening today. And uh, today I'm going to be talking about joy. In fact, this is a message that I recently preached at my home congregation, Prairie Presbyterian Church in Winnipeg. So you might have already heard this if you watch those on YouTube. Um, But if not, I just thought this was one of those messages that might uh, really resonate with people. This, uh, I'm calling it Being Students of Joy. And so today's podcast episode is all about joy um, and and how uh, really we joy not being this avoidance of of pain or struggle and nor is it just kind of a washing over things with being happy all the time but how do we really fight for joy in our lives and how do we take note of enjoyment in our life uh, to really enter into joy more fully and i for sure don't have all of this figured out but uh, as i gave this message at our church i just thought this might be something that would help more people Uh, So I hope this is helpful for you as you listen in today. So today's theme is the theme of joy. And even just in these prayers today, can I ask you, are you having trouble with joy these days? Or maybe any days, are you having trouble with joy? I know if I'm honest, I have some trouble with joy. And this isn't just because of a pandemic or anything like that. There are times when I go through bouts of sadness or being grumpy or whatever. But when I reflect, I realize that there actually are moments and there have been moments of sheer joy in my life. And we actually need to hold on to those moments. Um, I think most of us, and maybe this is part of why we have trouble with the idea of joy, most of us want to joy to be about the avoidance or the covering over of pain and sadness. And actually, joy isn't that. Joy is much more a taking in of all of it. Joy is, is almost like going all the way in and through. True joy, like love, actually requires being vulnerable. It requires the possibility and sometimes the actuality of loss. And now, I don't really know how well I'm doing with joy, but, but as I think about it, I think I'd love to be a student of joy. I'd love to learn to embrace joy more fully. So I want to invite you today to think about maybe yourself as a student of joy. What could I do to actually spot joy, see joy, and embrace it more fully? C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Surprised by Joy, and he, there's this quote that, uh, that is from that book that, that says this, All joy reminds. It is never a possession always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. In other words, joy is actually much more of a longing. It's strongest in anticipation of something or in remembering something or in reflecting on something. And we can get at this because we see this all around us in life. Um, Disney creates this really, really well. This 
idea of memory and anticipation. And so I wanted to tell you just a little bit about uh, last year when we could still travel just over a year ago. Uh, my family, uh, Cheryl, Juliet, and I went to Disneyland in California. And uh, we had a really great trip. I was uh, in California for a, a conference and they were able to join me uh, for, for a few days. And uh, the big thing for me was that we were going to Disneyland and I wanted to go on the Rise of Resistance ride, which is the new Star Wars ride at Disneyland. And that was, if, if we accomplished that, I was satisfied with my vacation. Like that was the main thing that I wanted to do. Now the way you get on the Rise of Resistance ride is you have to get into the theme park first thing in the morning right away, but you don't line up. You actually have to download an app on your phone that only will activate when you are in the theme park and then at technical opening time of the theme park, which I think was 8 a.m., suddenly you now are able to press a button on your phone that will hopefully get you into a virtual queue that is your line to be on the ride later that day. So everyone spreads out around this park. There's thousands of people and everybody is staring at their phone screens, which I guess isn't that unusual because that's what people do, but everyone's staring at their phone screens, waiting. Nobody's going on any rides because everyone's waiting for their app to become active because everyone is trying to get on this ride. And I remember we were standing in, in Tomorrowland and Tomorrowland has this kind of intense music. It's not sort of that nice Disney music that you always think of. It's more intense and it's like ramping you up, like you're, you're in the future, oh my goodness. And we're hearing this, uh, this, this music, this intense music going and Cheryl says, I, I need to go to the washroom. So she leaves and now it's just me and Juliet waiting with this intense music. Is the app gonna work? Are we gonna get on this ride? And it's, it's scary, like, oh my goodness, are we gonna do it? And, and we start to hear at about 8.01, we start to hear cheers going off in the, in the park. Hey, oh, we got on, we got on. And our app is not working. It's not loading. And then suddenly it becomes active and we tap the button and it tells us like you're on boarding group 89 and we only guarantee up to 70 getting on today. And we're like, oh, okay, relief. Okay, so excited. And then throughout the day, you know, are we gonna get on? Are we not gonna get on? Now, it's funny that this is actually a story that I've told to people since going there. And I've also told them about the ride and how great the ride was. And it was really mind blowing to go on this ride. But actually, some of the most joyful parts of that experience were the intensity of anticipation being in the park. And that's, as I reflect on it, that actually has nothing to do with the ride or anything. Disney creates this experience where actually kind of happy not even being on the ride yet. You're, you're excited. You're joyful in a way. Now, something maybe a little more meaningful is I remember holding my daughter for the first time and that being one of the experiences of most overwhelming joy for me. But it's interesting because as I thought about that this week, what was I doing when I was holding her? Well, I was actually remembering. Remembering the immediate labor that my wife had just gone through. Remembering the last nine months of anticipation of what 
is coming. We didn't know the gender of our, our child, so we just found out we had a girl. And also the anticipation of an entire life of what could be next. Okay, you could just say, well, you were just joyful because you had a daughter. True, but I wonder if there's something to this idea of memory and anticipation that C.S. Lewis points us to. Today we're baptizing little Ernest, and we are celebrating who he is in Christ. But what are we actually doing that makes this so joyful? We're remembering. For Ernest Sr. and for Rhoda, they're going to be thinking of family and friends who might be able to watch today, or there's family stories that go into this. They're coming together as a couple. There's the birth of a child. But we are also looking ahead, aren't we? We're anticipating. There's joy in the looking ahead and the anticipation. The same thing happens at weddings, right? We tell stories at weddings. We remember and we anticipate a future for that couple. And other special occasions do this naturally. We have rituals, traditions in place that help us to celebrate, to embrace the joy of the moment. We have food, special food that reminds us. We have cues that help us remember and anticipate. So think about it, right? A tree goes up in advance of Christmas, and then there's the day before where we anticipate what will be, what will be opened tomorrow. We have these these tools, really, for celebration, for embracing a life of joy. But in a lot of ways, we sort of just rely on the culture or rely on other things to get us to enter into and use those tools. We don't actually use them regularly. And in the midst of a pandemic, most of the culturally built tools have been disrupted or displaced. So, you know, we try to do Christmas, we try to do Easter, but all of those traditions that have gone along with them, they've been disrupted in some way. And so we haven't been able to enter into it in the same way. Because we take those tools for granted and those outside structures, when they disappear, it gets much harder for us. And so we spend less time observing, reflecting, remembering, and then anticipating what could be. Yet this is so much of where where we discover joy and embrace it. And really, Christians ought to be so good at embracing joy in this way because it's actually baked into our lives as followers of Jesus. We have it given to us in seasons and in weeks, in the liturgy and in the scriptures, right? We have Advent, the time of anticipation of Christmas. We have Lent, the time of reflection before Easter, right? And then most centrally, we have this already right in the resurrection of Jesus, Because in the resurrection of Jesus, what we have is we have a remembering of everything that was, everything that he did in his life, everything that happened in Holy Week, including the pain, and we have an anticipation, a great anticipation of what could be. In today's text from Luke, we find that the disciples don't recognize Jesus when he first shows up. And he shows them his hands and his feet. And then we get this phrase. This is Luke 24, 41. It says, while in their joy, they were disbelieving and still wondering. Do you hear that? 
while in their joy, so they've seen his hands and feet, they see the wounds and they remember Jesus. They are joyful at the hint of possibility, but they're actually still disbelieving and wondering at it all. But the joy, you feel it, is starting to grow. While in their joy, they were disbelieving and wondering. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? This is Jesus' words to them. And they do. They give him some fish and he eats it. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. You see what happens here is Jesus doesn't just stop them at remembering me, but he takes them even further back to remember. They will realize it is him. They are going to come to that realization, and the joy will just burst forth. It builds as the anticipation of what could be grows. It builds as they go farther back and see what the scriptures have said. And it builds as they think about what might be next. The other resurrection appearances of Jesus are quite similar. We think of the Emmaus story. If you know this story, there's two disciples. They're walking along a road. And they don't know about the resurrection of Jesus yet. But they've heard kind of a rumor. And Jesus comes and starts walking with them along the road. They don't recognize him at all. They just talk with him the whole way, and, um, and they have this great conversation. They get to their destination, and they invite this stranger to come and stay with them. And Jesus goes, and they end up uh, breaking bread together. And as soon as they break bread, these two disciples recognize Jesus, and, uh, and then Jesus disappears. And they race back to Jerusalem to say, we've seen the risen Lord. One of the things that they say after Jesus has gone to one another is they say, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road, while he talked to them about scripture? He took them back into their memory of scripture and of their history, their tradition, and their hearts were burning within them. Could this be? And then when they realize it's him, their eyes are open in the breaking of the bread. Similar things happen with Mary Magdalene in the garden. It may not seem similar, but basically the similarity is she doesn't recognize him at first, right? Each of these stories, they don't recognize Jesus at first. And finally, when she does recognize him, this is how it happens. They're having this conversation. She thinks he's the gardener, and he just says, Mary. He just says her name, and that's when she realizes, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. Uh, This week, I listened to a conversation between uh, Paula Gooder and Rowan Williams about the resurrection. Paula Gooder is the canon chancellor at St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And as part of it, a small part of it, she spoke about 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul links our own resurrection after death to Jesus' resurrection. And she talked about how there is a continuity and a discontinuity between Jesus' body before and after the resurrection, but it's not how we would think. So normally, we would think that in the resurrection life, we will be entirely recognizable as ourselves, right? So we will, people recognize who we are, but we'll be healed from all the things that I've disliked about my body now, right? Like all those things, whether it's a wound or just something we don't like, those are going to be taken away. We're going to be perfected, but everyone's going to recognize us. But notice how it is the exact opposite with Jesus' body and resurrection. 
People don't recognize him at all, but he still has his wounds. Isn't that interesting? I never really thought of that before. It's also interesting how this might be a metaphor for how we think joy ought to work. Right? We think joy ought to be in the grandiose. We don't quite believe that it is really truly accessible in the smaller moment, or we don't take time to notice it. We certainly don't reflect on what we are remembering or what we are anticipating without a whole bunch of extra help. So think about these Jesus stories of where joy started to build in the resurrection. Was it like the tomb cracked open and everyone saw it and it's a huge moment? Or is it actually Mary, your name spoken by someone you love? Is it the breaking of the bread, a small meal with somebody? Is it you're walking along the road having a conversation with someone that it turns out someone you really care about? We think that joy should also be the hiding of wounds, the covering over of pain or suffering. But we see in the resurrection stories that Jesus' wounds are all a part of it, actually a huge part of it. The joy is not that the pain is forgotten or ignored or plastered over with a veneer. In some ways, joy seems to embrace the marks of suffering. They're redeemed, yes, but it's an embracing of it. We think that joy ought to be recognizable. It ought to be totally obvious. But Jesus is not immediately recognizable, especially to those who are in despair. And look, we might push back on a lot of this and say, look, when I'm joyful, I know it. Like, I know when I'm joyful. But let's go farther. Because is it possible to not just wait till we have the right feeling and go, oh, I know what joy is now. Might it be possible to be students of joy so that we can access joy more regularly? Might it be that there are causes for joy actually all around us? And this isn't to say, oh, let's figure out how to always be happy or never look at the challenging places of life, or don't spend any time confronting evil or suffering in any real way. Just be happy. I'm not saying that at all. Actually, as with Jesus' life, it is all in. All in, even the suffering, and all the way through. And in the midst of it, we are still on the lookout for joy, on the lookout for new life, for resurrection, if you will. But again, this doesn't need to be that grandiose. Joy comes often in these small ways when you take the time to observe, reflect, remember, and or anticipate. I've been reading a book by Matthew Dix called Story Worthy, Engage, Teach, Persuade, and Change Your Life Through the Power of Storytelling. Uh, this isn't a, a Christian book. It's just about telling stories, basically. At the beginning of the book, he talks about how do you find material for stories from your own life? Because he's actually an onstage storyteller. He enters story competitions where he verbally tells the stories on stage. So it's much like a comedian finding material. He asks this question, how do you find so much material for stories? And how does he have so many stories to tell? Is it just he's lived a really unusual life? He has actually done a whole bunch of unusual things in his life. But he said it's actually not that. He talks about doing what he calls homework for life. And what he does is he takes about five minutes at the end of every day and he thinks, what was the most story-worthy thing that happened today? And then he writes it in a spreadsheet. 
He doesn't write down the whole thing. He doesn't try to find great words for it. He just writes down a few key words that will remind him of the event so that if he went back and looked at his spreadsheet five years from now, he'd be able to go, oh, right, I remember that day. Right, it was earnest baptism that day. That was joyful. I remember that. Right? That's all you'd have to write. That's it. And that's where he gets all his story material. Just making a couple of notes, five minutes a day, what was the most story-worthy event. It's kind of like if you're on social media and you have those memories pop up with a picture that you took eight years ago and you're like, oh, right, I remember that. Every now and again, you get this powerful memory. It's like that, but doing it every day and intentionally doing it instead of hoping that Facebook is going to remind you of a positive photo that you took. I thought about his practice, and I don't think I'm necessarily going to actually do it daily, but I did realize that it might be enough for me to try to remember during my day, as things are actually unfolding and happening, to actually take note of what is meaningful, what is hard, what is beautiful, and on reflection, what is joyful. I'm preaching to you today. What a joy. I'm about to baptize someone. Wow, this is great. Uh, earlier, I'll just throw this in, Erin, who's leading some of our liturgy today, and uh, it's just wonderful to have her here. She said, can you take a picture of me? Uh, not knowing what I was going to say in my sermon. Can you take a picture of me while I'm leading the liturgy, which I did, because I want to, I don't know, something about like I want to remember or I want to know and remember that I'm so excited to lead liturgy today in church. That's actually what I'm talking about. Aaron's doing it. But what about just plain not feeling it, right? I feel beaten down. What if you feel like that? Here's the thing. It's worth fighting for joy. And that might mean in some of the hardest moments, that might mean counseling or therapy or sometimes it just might mean talking to a friend, saying, I'm just not able to access joy. Like, I just can't get there. But, but it's worth doing. This, this is it. If, if you feel beaten down and you're kind of leaning towards cynicism and just saying, look, it's not possible. I'm never going to be happy. I'm never going to be joyful. I, I want to try this thought exercise. Think of all the stories, all the movies where there is a villain that is trying to take over uh, and destroy things, like take over the world or whatever they're doing, and it's bad, and all the heroes band together, they come together to try to defeat that villain. If you aren't feeling any joy ever, it might be time to name that as a villain, to fight for it, to start putting the tools together, to start working for it, maybe in a new way. When the world just feels overwhelming, when it is bad, when we need to... Uh, Maybe that's when we need to realize that truly a better reality is possible and the joy that you have experienced sometime in your past is worth fighting for so you can experience it again. Every time we're cynical, every time we disbelieve that there can be hope or we don't have the feeling of the possibility of joy anymore, maybe we need to name all of that as of the enemy and then go to work as best we can 
to fight for joy. Maybe sometimes we have to move through the wounds of Good Friday and yes, still see and feel the wounds, but we need to see them on Easter. How can we get to the place of the disciples when they met the risen Lord? And we have this phrase, how do we get to, while in their joy, they were still disbelieving and still wondering, oh, I can't even believe this is possible, but somehow there's this joy. Another simple example just to, to close today. I like uh, going for walks in the Assiniboine Forest here in Winnipeg. And in the middle of the Assiniboine Forest, there is a fire hydrant. And it really seems out of place. Like you're, you're not near anything else that is of the city. You're just, I mean, it's in the city because it's a city for an urban forest. But you walk quite a ways into the forest and you find this fire hydrant. And obviously it's placed there, like it's, it's connected up, it works uh, six months of the year, it's available, and it's there for a very practical purpose. If there was ever a fire in the forest, you could actually get water and you could try to put the fire out. That's great. So that's why it's there, obviously. But I don't know, the first time I came across the fire hydrant in the forest, it just brought me such delight. And I think it's because it just feels out of place. You see it and you just think, what is this doing here? And if you don't let your logical brain take over and say, well, obviously it's here because put out forest fire, potential forest fire, it's safety. Then, then you sort of just get struck by it. But I, I thought more about that fire hydrant and why why am I so delighted by it? Because other people are probably thinking, you're crazy. What's wrong with you? Why are you delighted by a fire hydrant in a forest? That's, that doesn't bring me any joy. But I actually think it might be because it reminds me of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, where there is a lamppost that sits in the middle of the forest in Narnia. And it's a real simple thing. That maybe that's what it is for me. That's been a formative story for me. The point I'm trying to make here is that it took noticing and reflecting. It took realizing that this oddly placed fire hydrant, it kind of makes me smile. And then the greater reflection actually takes me a bit closer to the realm of joy. And so thank you to C.S. Lewis for writing those stories, The Chronicles of Narnia, and for writing Surprise by Joy where we got the quote where we started. All joy reminds. It's never a possession. Always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. Longer ago or further away or still about to be. Which to me actually sounds a lot like our Christian confession. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Amen.